Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This week on Commons People, no-deal preparations are going swimmingly. We have only five months until there is... Uh, the, these no-deal arrangements have to be in place. Labour split over taxes on the rich. Yesterday, the Shadow Chancellor said Labour would support the tax cuts. And is Philip Hammond about to cost the government a minister with his budget? Hello and welcome to Commons People, HuffPost's politics podcast. I'm Ned Simons and I'm joined this week as ever by Paul War. Hi, Hi Paul. Ned. And for a second week, because Brexit is still a thing, uh, Anand Menon from the UK in a changing Europe think tank. Oh, yeah. So no deal prep is going well then. Um, here's Immigration Minister Caroline Noakes clashing with Yvette Cooper at the Home Affairs Committee this week. You've been incredibly great. You've been incredibly generous with your time and we very much appreciate it. I would also say, however, we have only five months until there is... Uh, the, these no-deal arrangements have to be in place, and this is our opportunity. And we, you know, we have a whole series of questions that Parliament hasn't had answers to. So I am hugely grateful for your time, but equally, I hope you, Minister, will understand the importance of being able to answer to and Parliament. And only five months to go. Some of my time this afternoon might have been scheduled for future planning. Well, you see, two council meetings so far. Noke said that uh, EU citizens will have to have extra checks on them when they come to the UK in event of a no deal. And then a few hours later, Sajid Jeffords said, not so much. Uh, Dominic Raab yesterday said that uh, he expected an EU withdrawal deal to be done by the 21st November. A few hours later, his own department said, not really. <laughs> and this morning, um, reports that a Brexit deal on financial services was close to being agreed was dismissed as misleading by Michel Barnier. So, Anand, everything seems to be going absolutely swimmingly then, yeah? It's going fantastically well, yes. Never a dull moment. Uh, what I would say is behind the scenes, mm. the negotiators have got an awful lot of stuff done. I mean, a lot of very tricky issues. I mean, things, things like Gibraltar have been negotiated. And we shouldn't lose that from sight. I mean, there's a, there's a political pantomime going on, but there's quite a lot of hard and effective work going on behind the scenes in the talks. So why do the government keep messing up? I mean, Noakes particularly, if you're trying to present um, kind of a front that you've gotten things under control, you know what you're doing, wasn't that one of the most kind of disastrous select committee hearings we've seen in, in a very long time? Oh, absolutely. I mean, my sense of that was that she was badly briefed, badly prepared, and she turned a bad story, a good good news story, mm. because the government has agreed terms on this, into a bad news story quite spectacularly. Uh, but also, I think that the, the the more profound thing is that people get confused between the rights of EU citizens who are here mm. and what our future immigration policy will be. And they're two totally separate things. In the withdrawal agreement, we're signing up to rights for those who are already here, who enjoy free movement rights. And that's totally separate to what we do in the future with our immigration policy. Yeah, that's a good point, isn't it? So that's all going to be in the future future partnership or mm. framework, as we call it. Well, it might be. I mean, most trade deals have something about immigration, but more more importantly, it'll be in our future immigration legislation whenever we get that. Right. And do you, do you see any kind of, I don't know, 
magic balance that she can strike, a sort of Goldilocks of it just being just enough immigration to keep the economy and, and satisfy business needs and just low enough immigration to satisfy the punters who voted leave? Well, it's hard to know where that sweet spot is. I mean, there are several things to say. Firstly, the Brits don't seem concerned about immigration anymore. I mean, public attitudes are shifting. Yeah. Secondly, and it's an important point, whatever the government does, the fact remains that we have become a far less attractive destination for EU citizens for a variety of reasons. One, because they don't think we like them. Two, because there's uncertainty shrouding everything, which isn't a great sort of... Uh, place to be if you want to come and set up a new life here. And third, of course, you don't earn as much in real terms. The exchange rate has taken a hit since the referendum. And that means that actually for people who are remitting money back home, it's far less attractive. That's a really good point. Also, what do you think about Rob's kind of quickly withdrawn claim that a deal be done by the 21st? I mean, every kind of hour, things are going well, they're not going well. How close are we, do you think? Well, I mean, there's there's two parallel stories mm. here. There's the pantomime of Rob's interaction with the exiting the EU committee. <laughs> yeah. Both sides are obviously just getting really hacked off with this exchange of letters, and it's quite fun to read. The second thing, my, my hunch about this, and it's only a hunch, is that the government knows that at a certain point in time, they have to actually start doing something about no deal, not just talking about it. And that means spending hundreds of millions of pounds on, you know, building car parks near Dover or hiring customs offices or whatever. And the rumours I hear is that the government have been told you have to start doing that by the end of November. If no deal looks like it's going to happen, you push the button on that spending Mm. by the end of November. Now, that is why there is a new desperation in the British government to sign something at that that summit that's been penciled in in mid-November. Because it will save them what would be a really bad look. Spending hundreds of millions of pounds Mm. on no deal in November, if you get a deal in December, makes you look incompetent. And do you think starting the ball rolling in spending that money then makes no deal more inevitable? Does it kind of have a self-fulfilling prophecy in a sense that once you start preparing, people start thinking, well, we're going that way, we might as well just do it or not? Not really. I think we've left it so late Mm. that however much we spend now, we're not going to be ready for no deal. And of course, the other thing, the rather irritating thing about this is it doesn't just hinge on us. If the French and the Belgians and the Dutch and the Irish don't start doing the same thing, then actually those cues are going to appear anyway. So, and, and there is no sign that any of them, apart from perhaps the Dutch who are doing a few things in Rotterdam, are really taking this seriously. I mean, you know, the French, the French regional press is full of sort of people in Calais saying, you know, what the hell? We need to get going. Why doesn't the government give us any money? Nothing is happening. And isn't that part of the problem, Anand, which is, what, you know, no deal, whether or not it's in the abstract or whether it's actually real. Um, it, we keep hearing lots and lots of stories in recent weeks about what would happen in no deal. Um, and in a way, it's good for the government to keep that fiction alive, isn't it? Obviously, in negotiating terms. But if it does become real, I mean, isn't that the problem with the whole Caroline Noakes problem this week is that actually it showed that if there is no deal, there's no way. We just don't have time to register all these EU citizens, 3.6 million of them before exit day, for example. We'd have time over a transition. Of course mm-hmm. we would. But what happens with no deal on the de- on March 29th? I mean, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the key question about no deal is all of a sudden everything changes overnight and no one's ready for that on either side of the channel. What I would say, though, is, and I should name check my colleague Alan Wager, who's written a piece, which is in a rival publication, but will be on our website tomorrow, <laughs> so fear not, uh, in which he argues, and it's a really nice argument, that the government has been rather competent at persuading MPs that it's too incompetent to prepare for no deal. And that, <laughs> and that works because actually the more we seem ill-prepared for no deal... The more those MPs, when they troop through the lobbies to vote on this, are thinking, we cannot 
allow that to happen. Right. And that might work in the government's favour. So maybe there's a bit of method in the government's madness and they, by, by actually leaving it so late. Seek, don't we? So late. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The accidental method in the but madness, But leaving perhaps. it so late means exactly that. It would be chaotic. Yeah, and, and you know, to be fair... And the Brexiteers have said all along, why haven't you been planning for this, you know, from the very day after the referendum? Absolutely. And, and as with so much, the Prime Minister's had to walk this tightrope between, on the one hand, doing enough to convince the Brexiters that it is an option whilst at the same time having in mind the fact that I need to win a vote that gets us a deal to avoid that outcome. Yeah. But it's not easy. Let's talk about the maybe the uh, the thing that actually uh, a lot of people this week within Westminster have been talking about, even though they've not been talking about it in the pubs and clubs, which is Norway for now. Now, this is Nick Bowles's grand idea. Mm. This is a sort of big compromise that we could join the European Economic Area, the EEA, even though we leave the EU and it'd be a sort of, you know, temporary status before we then at some point in the future go towards a Canada style deal. Um, Now, during the referendum, I remember, and you'll probably remember both of you, that actually Michael Gove was was asked very early on about the so-called Norway model. And it wasn't a blonde bombshell called um, uh, anything like uh, Boris Johnson. But what he really meant was, um, well, maybe we could go on to sort of Norway style um, uh, arrangement and then change it later. And that was during the referendum campaign. He was quick to sort of not pick one particular country then. But it's alive and kicking with his... Out, you know, his acolyte, Nick Bowles. Everyone thinks that this is Gove's secret mm-hmm. idea because he's so close to Nick Bowles. And a lot of Tory MPs, even Amber Rudd last night on Twitter said, actually, this isn't a bad idea. Why Why are the EU being so negative about it? Do you, the EU have said, I think it's Jean Pierce, isn't it, who's the former legal ad- advisor mm-hmm. to the EU, has made clear in a Twitter storm this week that actually Norway for now is deeply flawed for X, Y and Z reasons. Do you think the EU are being unreasonable about that, or do you think they've just they're, they're actually being they haven't got any choice in saying it, it's deeply flawed? I think where the EU have a point in saying, look, you just say Norway or Canada or whatever, and, and, and as if there's a deal waiting to be signed there that doesn't have to be amended, negotiated in detail for your specific circumstances. And I think they're right. You don't just pick up a piece of paper called Norway and sign, you know, Theresa May at the bottom, and you're in. There's yeah. quite a lot of work. So there is a time issue. Right. The second thing is that from the EU side, they're thinking, why are we going to put a load of work into something? that the Brits have said we're going to tear up as soon as it suits us. Uh, and actually yeah. the Norwegian Prime Minister said pretty much the same thing. She, she I mean, did. for the members of the EEA, I think in private they're thinking, oh my God, Britain in this club, they're too big, they're too grumpy, they're too cantankerous. I mean, you know, the, the EEA rests on several things. It rests on, above all, a degree of subtlety and discretion. That's to say you have that, you have that wiggle room Not to negotiate EU laws, a degree of flexibility in the system that maybe right. doesn't exist in the EU system. But if there are two words that don't apply to Britain, it's subtle and discreet. Yeah. Right. So I think privately, they've always had reservations about this. Publicly, they've had to say, oh, yes, we'd welcome you in our club. Yeah. Uh, But actually, it was quite something to hear the Norwegian prime minister come out publicly and say, actually, the one thing we won't do is risk all this for a short term fix. And I think Michael Gove, who incidentally, I think in one of the speeches where he talked about EEA, did name check a country because he was mocked for it. He talked about Albania. Don't you remember? That's true. He He talked about the Albanian model. (laughs) He did. And uh, I remember the Remain side celebrating that they'd won because Michael Govan made a fool of himself. No, I remember that really well. Uh, Yeah. Uh, I think he made a tactical error when he said a few weeks back, look, let's just leave. We can do what we want afterwards. We can tear it all up. Mm. Because, I mean, again, that's the problem of British politics, isn't it? 
we we act as if no one outside our borders can hear us. Yeah. Uh, and they all read that and they thought, well, right, okay, well, we're going to have to have some safeguards then. So don't be surprised when they redouble their efforts to ensure this thing called the level playing field for the future arrangement, because they're very well aware that there are politicians in our government who think we'll sign an agreement and then afterwards we'll go our own merry way. That's I guess that's similar to Jeremy Hunt comparing the EU to the USSR at Tory conference. I think that was just rude. And, to be honest. Was, <laughs> and uh, obviously aimed at Brexiteers and the party mm-hmm. and then the EU were annoyed and then he later claimed that by doing that it somehow unlocked the talks a bit, which I thought was a little bit yeah. wishful thinking on, on And what's perverse about that in particular is you offend most the people in normal times you'd be thinking would be keenest to see us get a mm. good deal. You know, the states of Central and Eastern Europe, the Baltic states, who are close historical allies and who, where actually the security card might carry some weight, let's say it's like a gulag and see how they react. Yeah. I mean... It was an extraordinary. Tusk's reaction underlined yeah. that, well, didn't it? Uh, Tusk himself obviously has in a... In particular, <laughs> yeah. Um, the other thing I thought that was interesting about this whole EEA and Norway for now debate was that actually... The two groups that were most pleased by the Norwegian Prime Minister saying, look, this actually isn't going to fly. Well, yeah, number 10, they were really delighted because it cut off one of those, you know, third way options that MPs might have been thinking about. But the Labour leadership were really delighted by it as well, because I know for a fact that I think the People's Vote, this campaign for a second referendum, they issued a briefing note this week, which actually did the same thing as what the EU have done. And they demolished the Norway for now idea point by point. They said it won't solve your customs problem. It won't certainly won't solve the Northern Ireland problem. They said it won't solve a whole string of things of manufacturing and, and you'll have the courts and you'll have all sorts mm-hmm. of complications with the EEA membership. It's not simple. And they said, we've been saying that since the word go. To, and there was, yet there were still 75 MPs, Labour MPs, who defied their whip and voted for EEA membership. Mm-hmm. And so the Labour leadership are delighted that finally people are coming out with evidence as to why that idea is a bad one. And that actually, although... Keir Starmer himself, you know, has his own hybrid version. It's not the EEA. I mean, I was slightly surprised that you picked up... I mean, I think there's a slightly different unholy alliance that is more striking, and it's the unholy alliance between People's Vote and ERG. Right. Both of whom, for very different reasons, kind of want a car crash. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And, you know, watching those people walk through the lobby together will be very, very interesting. Yeah, Because obviously they want polar opposite out. But on the Labour point specifically... There's all. I mean, the problem Labour faces is that at some point someone might say to them, so what practically would you do? Because all this stuff about a jobs-friendly Brexit, about being as close to the single market as possible, of course, the one thing they're not saying, unless you're Caroline Flint, and she keeps saying it, is what about freedom of movement? It is part of this deal, whether we like it or not. What are we going to do about it? Now, the Labour Party, like any good opposition party, is managing quite well to be vague and say, the government's rubbish, we do it better, we can't quite tell you how yet. But at some point as we get towards decision time, I wonder whether the Labour leadership isn't going to find this quite uncomfortable. They're going to have to actually be more specific than they've been today. Well, you're right. Keir Starmer has signally avoided being specific about you know, migration policy. Although, to be fair, Diane Abbott the other week did actually do a decent stab at mm-hmm. trying to find a way through, didn't she? She absolutely did. But actually what she was, was talking about was this principle of fairness across the board, that we should treat all people who want to come to this country equally. That's great. But if you want to be in the EEA, you can't. Right. You have yeah. a European preference, you have an EEA preference. Yeah, absolutely. Before we move on to the quiz, there is a quiz you have to suffer through. <laughs> uh, we shouldn't. We have to mention David Davis, who the other night uh, said that he believed kind of terror 
would mean that a deal would be done. Mm-hmm. By that, I guess he meant that you know people be so scared of a no deal, the deal would go through. Do yeah. you think he's right there? He backtracked a bit. Two but... sorts of terror mm. in the House of Commons, I think. There mm. is a terror on the Remain side of no deal, mm-hmm. and there's a terror on the opposite side about a, pol- a failure by Parliament to approve the deal leading to a second referendum. Mm. So there are two different sorts of terror that government whips are trying to exploit simultaneously. I don't know. I mean, it's impossible, isn't it? I mean, you talk to MPs, most of them will say, I don't know what I'm going to do. Mm. So how pundits can say we know what's going to happen (laughs) i don't know but yeah they'll use the terror card uh but as i said there are people there who want parliament to fail to do this because it opens up the road to their preferred outcome whether that's no deal or a referendum and you did promise me we could talk about fish oh yes fish fish we always like to talk about fish fish. (laughs) go for it anand well Something interesting has happened in Brussels this week, which might surprise you. Uh, And that is that some member states have said, we're not willing to talk about a customs arrangement with you for the future agreement because you're talking about excluding our boats from your fishing waters. This is very EU. Okay, you get to the 11th hour of negotiation. Someone sticks their hand up. In the 90s, it used to be the Spanish. You'd negotiate a (laughs) treaty. You'd get towards signing. The Spanish would stick their hand up and say, I'm really sorry. I forgot to mention we're going to veto this treaty unless you give us more money. So they're doing this with fish. Now, this matters first because fish is politically salient here. Mm. And if we start reneging on the things we've said to fishermen here, it matters. So it might get in the way for the withdrawal deal yet, the fisheries issue. Okay, It matters far more because in the future, when we sign that trade deal, every single parliament in the European Union has to approve that deal, including parliaments of countries that like fishing here. Uh, so if you like, at, at best, it's a warning about what awaits us. At worst, it's something that might get in the way during this negotiation itself. So it's because they've got a veto then, individual member states. Which yeah. is something that's been ignored, hasn't Not it, now, really? but in the future. Yeah, yeah. The fact that individual parliaments have got to say, everyone sort of ignored that that fact until, that's interesting. until now. Well, because that's that's for the deal in the future. Yeah. yeah. But still, anything we sign up to has to get through all those, including some of those regional parliaments. Those tricky little Wallonians. Oh, Wallonians. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we need to have an eye on that because we can say what we want in this political declaration. But if there's a parliament in Europe that says, oh, no, thank you very much indeed, then it's not going to sail. And before we do go to the quiz, and I'm desperate to go to the quiz. I wouldn't be. I need to pick Anand's <laughs> brains about the the one, you know, Dominic Raab this week, you know, has been saying there could be a deal by 21st November. That prompts everyone to think, well, what will that deal actually look like on one of the key sticking points, this Northern Irish backstop? Mm-hmm. Um with, without going into too much detail, um, basically the RTE, the Irish news station, got hold of a draft leak of what this agreement says. And on the one hand, it sounds like they're being quite canny. They're saying the Brits can have their thing right at the top of this um, withdrawal agreement. You can put it, it's quite clever, redrafting it. Put, put the stuff that Brits like right at the top, but the bits that they like don't like could be right at the bottom with an annex suggesting, look, there's a separate protocol here where we'll still keep what we want to do about this Irish backstop. The EU idea of the Irish backstop, which means that Northern Ireland would effectively be linked to customs indefinitely. And single um, market. And the single market market uh and now the brits can have their break clause on top of it and all that etc but this this sounds to me like that's exact there's nothing's going to really change that draft and how do people like you know the attorney general jeffrey cox mufasa himself how how does he (laughs) and dominic raab how do they swallow that it's it's a very good question i mean there are two things here. The first is the EU isn't going to move on the backstop itself. Whatever nice language they put around it, the backstop, as the mechanism by which you avoid a border in the island of Ireland if you don't get a trade deal that works, is going to be there. Or they won't or they won't sign it off. It's as simple as that. Now, there are two documents, aren't there? So there's like 
the withdrawal agreement is like the medicine. It tastes disgusting for the Brits because it's all about giving them money. It's all about giving them a backstop. It's all about giving them rights. Yeah. And then if you like, the sugar for the medicine is the political declaration. And everything is going to hinge on how sweet that sugar is and to what extent it covers up the taste of what we're having to swallow in the withdrawal agreement. I rather like this analogy, actually. <laughs> uh, you get, you're licking your lips, Alan. I feel a blog coming on. Uh, and and it's, that's quite hard to do because the sugar's not legally binding. The political declaration is a political declaration. The withdrawal agreement is an international well, isn't treaty. Well, is not the sugar jam tomorrow as well? Effectively. <laughs> to, well, to, to, to this jam, jam in several years' time. It's turning into a scone now, isn't it, rather than anything else? <laughs> right. right. On that note, let's go to the quiz. So I've got a terrible quiz. Uh, it's about referendums and the margins of victory. For ah, the, uh, you see, ah, I should know this, for the, for, the, for the winning side. So obviously, Brexit referendum was 52%. I'll give you some other referendums. I want you to tell me, was the winning margin narrower narrower or wider than the brexit referendum right which was what four points something like yeah that. three points yeah. yeah so we just i want to know the, the winning percentage yeah so if it's you know 67 that's more oh okay right right the winner okay, yeah, yeah yeah the winner so denmark in 2000 on joining the euro was rejected but how many percent rejected it mm. i thought was it was it, more or less was it was it more than 52 or less more Ooh, I'd say more because they're, they're quite doubting, aren't they? Yeah, uh, it was more, but just fifty-three point two, so quite close. All right, uh, ninety-five. Uh, Quebec voted on independence from Canada. Uh, was it wider or narrower? Was it f- more than fifty-two? Less. Ooh, I'd say it was really close. So I'm going to say less. Yeah, I'm going to say like fifty point. Yeah, it was fifty point five eight percent, which yes. is insane. Yes, kind of that's amazing. Like, Obviously, that was no, they didn't become independent. Um, Okay, Turkey in 2017 had a very controversial referendum on giving the president more powers. Um, It narrowly passed. But by, was it? Oh, I just messed it up. Ah. Give me the answer. I didn't know it was but, narrow. You know, let's just keep how going. Narrow? We'll, just, we'll just bowl it. We'll carry um, on with that. Uh, let's say it's it's slightly more than a referendum. And I'm going to go for more than 52. I'd say more because I wouldn't have thought that the Turkish authorities would allow narrow votes anymore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, they do if it's on what they want because it was uh, 51.41% Ooh. and that's gave the president loads more here, power. I don't know. Okay, I'll give you a couple more. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, New Zealand um, voted on whether to change their flag oh, or yeah. not. Yeah. Um, they kept the existing flag, which one with yeah. the little British you know, Union Jack in the corner. Uh, was it more than 52%? Didn't they start oh. off with more than two options? Yeah, they had that? like four Just options yeah. and they narrowed it down. Uh, yeah. I think it was between a silver fern and uh, the, right. the current one. Um, I'm going to say more than 52 because I think they, they were quite firm. Am I wrong? I'm thinking more. Yeah, it was 56. But oh, still it's not that firm. Relatively <laughs> It's a landslide narrow. compared to All Brexit. Right. And speaking of fish uh, and fish wars, um, Iceland in 1918, a referendum on independence from Denmark. Oh, do you think it was more than 52%? That's a really good, obscure referendum, isn't it? Are you going to sit there oh, and yeah, pretend I spent a lot think... of time Googling referendums. I'm going to, I see, I was trying to do an educated guess. You see, that's why I'm pausing. I'm more. going to say more. Oh. Yeah, so much more. 92.6%. Whoa! Yeah, my sort of referendum. <laughs> there we go. Uh, that's a quiz about referendums. I spent a lot of time looking at percentages. Love it. Was it. very boring. Thank you. Thanks, Anand. And thanks, Pleasure Anand. Again. So also, of course, we can't uh, leave this podcast without mentioning the budget, which happened this week. Um, interestingly, one of the big stories out of it was a Labour split. Uh, John McDonnell managed to be attacked from the left by Yvette Cooper um, and other Labour MPs because he said he wouldn't oppose Philip Hammond's 
changes to tax and income tax thresholds. Um, this was after the Resolution Foundation said that the budget overall would overwhelmingly benefit the rich. Um, Jeremy Corbyn then managed to criticise the tax cuts in PMQs, uh, which allowed Theresa May to kind of exploit Labour splits. Uh, here's a clip of that. But I'm interested that the Right Honourable Gentleman chose to raise the question of tax cuts. On Monday, on Monday he, said putting, he said that cutting taxes for 32 million people was frittering money away on ideological tax cuts. Yesterday, yesterday the Shadow Chancellor said Labour would support the tax cuts. On, um, on, Monday, on Monday, the Right Honourable Gentleman, the Leader of the Opposition, talked about tax cuts for the rich. Yesterday, his Shadow Chancellor said what we've always known, that the tax cuts were for middle earners, head teachers, and people like that. So when the Right Honourable Gentleman stands up, perhaps he can tell the House whether he will back the tax cuts and vote for the budget. So, Paul, why is McDonnell doing this? You'd think it seems to go against everything he believes in, you know, tax cuts for the rich. What's he well, changed his tune? It's really telling that it, what this whole week has, has shown is just how pragmatic John McDonnell is. Mm. And that's what's really driving it all. You know, this is the guy who, don't forget, insisted that every line of the Labour manifesto was fully costed, that, you know, they've learned the lessons of the years gone by when Tories used to take them apart and say, look, you know, you haven't costed everything. So Labour actually looked more bank manager-like at the last election than the Tories because they didn't have an uncosted spending commitments. But it's, it's actually more fundamental than that because the reason John McDonnell can say to the left of the party, look, you're just going to have to swallow things that we don't particularly like, which is a bit of tax cuts for for the some of the better off, not totally rich, but some of the better off. Um, the reason you swallow that is, trust me, because when we get into power, we're going to actually slap taxes on the really rich mm. and we're going to do our own version. But the reason he can do that is because it's like Nixon in China. The reason <laughs> Nixon in China worked is because everyone back home thought, this guy is so anti-communist. He's got enough credentials to then go over and talk to um, mm. Mao Zedong. And that's exactly what, what John McDonnell's doing. He's got such credibility on the left. No one could ever call McDonnell a Blairite, ever. And, and so he's saying, look, just stick with me. Trust me. And I think that's quite Is, is there know, a danger? Um, obviously, you can make the argument, which they can, you know, where else do you go? Like you say, that where, where did the left of John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn within a mainstream political party do voters have to go? Is there a worry at all that it could dampen kind of enthusiasm, though? If you've got young, enthusiastic party members, that's kind of how they sell themselves as a movement. But is, I there, think, is there a worry about that? I don't think that. Them, I don't think it is a big worry because hmm. the, McDonald's been equally clever this week um, in that he's trying to balance out his pragmatism on on tax cuts and saying, look, it's just the way you know, like Ed Balls before him, you know, the the way the parliamentary procedure works, the the parliamentary. Arithmetic means that actually the government can bundle up lots of things in one in one vote for the budget and put all its good tax credits and bad, bad tax cuts all in one package and mm. Labour will have to vote for them as mm. a package. So that's why Labour, you know, some Labour MPs, curiously, you might say, uh, some of them former Blairites are going to perhaps vote against uh, the, the government's proposals and defy the party whip tonight. Uh, as we record this, we don't know how many. Um, some of them will be people like Lisa Nandiachi, who I, I suspect have always been, they haven't moved. They've always been on the soft left. They'd never mm. like giving this kind of tax cut to the rich. And so you can say they're consistent. Um, 
But at the same time, the reason McDonald's been clever is because he's also promising a brand new policy on the benefits freeze and saying, look, we're going to uprate benefits in line with earnings. Mm. Now, Labour did not say that at the last general election. Well, Corbyn sort of said it, then had to backtrack on it a bit, didn't he? He had to slightly, <laughs> but and we had this curious yeah. briefing with uh, his spokesman after the PMQs, uh, which you can read in full and in the transcript on, on HuffPost. Um in which there was a bit of a wobble about, oh, can we can we do this? Are we doing this? But actually, then the line was clarified later. Yeah, we are rating mm. in line with inflation. And that, to the left, is a really good policy. It says that, look, although the, on the one hand, the government are, are, are giving away money to the wrong people, we're going to give it to the right people. Corbyn and McDonnell. Now, you know, Corbyn sort of walked into a trap in PMQs by raising it in a sense. Um, there was a story in the Times this morning about how actually there is a split between the Labour leader and the Shadow Chancellor over this tax cut issue. Do you think there's any truth to that? I don't or- think that at all. Because I think Corbyn and McDonnell are actually such close political mm. allies that I think um, Corbyn has delegated to McDonnell this territory. Like any decent party leader, you make sure that your Chancellor, your Shadow Chancellor has full control. And he's done that. But because they're aligned, as I say, historically, McDonald's been on the left for so mm. long that Corbyn doesn't worry that somehow he's going off in some right wing direction. He's not. It's it's actually more. I and I wrote this this morning. Actually, it's more a distinction between McDonald, not and Corbyn, but McDonald and um, Carrie Murphy, who's um, John, um, Jeremy Corbyn's chief of staff. Mm. Now. Um, that is certainly a, a source of tension because I think sometimes the leader's office want to portray things in a different way to McDonnell uh, and they think McDonnell sort of goes off and does his own thing a bit too much. And it's certainly true that I was told by someone who really knows this stuff that McDonnell at one point, his relationship with Carrie Murphy was so bad that um, he screamed at one point, look, I'm the one who's, don't forget, I'm the one who's elected here in this room. Um, and, you know, it's a quite a powerful card yeah. to play. So, you know, I don't think the Corbyn and McDonnell are, are not on the same page, but I do think there is obviously some grumbling about tactics. Now, Tory MPs were quite sort of chipper, weren't they, in PMQs yesterday, talking about the budget rather than Brexit for once. And Hammond seemed to have a pretty OK reaction to, to what, you know, it wasn't an omni shambles. There wasn't sort of some massive backlash, apart from perhaps on um, betting, yep. where it, as we record this on a Thursday afternoon, the future of Tracy Crouch, the sports minister, seems to be hanging in the balance. Yeah. A rumour she might resign because of a delay to a crackdown on gambling. You know, what 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 are we going to see there? Do you think? Well, in- it's certainly true. Uh, friends of Tracy have made quite clear that she was furious at what happened in the budget. And what happened in the budget was that the government decided to delay by an extra six months this um, crackdown, which was, would lower the maximum stake on these fixed old betting terminals, mm. the crack cocaine of the, of the gambling to, world. two quid. From £100 at the moment, the maximum stake, right down to two quid, which at a stroke would really, you know, mm. make a big difference on the, on the people who are addicted to these machines. And people are addicted. They can lose thousands and thousands of pounds in one afternoon. Uh, and somehow that's legal. And the government change which the government have agreed grudgingly the treasury have agreed they are going to change it but what happened in the budget was that suddenly they had an extra six months in which to do it now this is why if Teresa, if tracy crouch does stay she'll be quite an expensive minister mm. because it will cost it's labor has estimated the tax that the government will retain or, or save from this um, uh, six-month delay is 250 million quid. The price of a minister. That's how much a minister costs these days. That's the going rate. Um, so if she stays and somehow the government changes tack, 
um, then, you know, the government's going to have to find that money from somewhere. You could argue, quite rightly, if you're Tracy Crouch, this is such an important social issue. It says everything about the PM's burning injustices agenda, mm. which is not the Brexit agenda, that actually if you do something about people who are really vulnerable and you're, the government is using the power of the state to intervene... Why not? And and against the power of the gambling lobby, the multi-billion pound, then why not? And also, 250 million compared to 100 billion giveaway in the budget. Yeah. That's the point. And I think that's why someone like Tracy Crouch would be really pissed off. That Why not just give 250 million for six months when you've got billions swilling around? You've had this big windfall. Why not spend it on, on something that really matters? And also, it was interesting that the culture secretary in the Commons earlier today was kind of being a bit slippery, saying that there wasn't a delay really. Yeah. But then in the Lords yesterday, Day, a different minister kind of admitted there is a delay done in liaison with the gambling industry. So exactly. that in itself isn't a particularly good look if well, you kind of admitting that, yeah, we spoke to the, the industry and changed our that's mind. That's so true. And Jeremy Wright gave two reasons. One, on one hand, he sounded like computer says no, because he denied that it was a delay. He kept saying again and again, this isn't a delay. Yet even Tory ministers like David Jones, a former Tory minister, David Jones, took the mickey out of him. Labour was furious with him for suggesting there was no delay. And it, it, Jeremy Wright, who's a grey man at the best of times, just sounded even greyer. Mm. And you can see why someone who's as colourful and independent minded as, as Tracy Crouch would be tempted to walk under those circumstances. Mm. Because the one thing he said that was really, really um, uh, important was he suggested, yes, the minister, Tracy Crouch, has done a brilliant job, but, big but, this, the, we need collective responsibility. Mm. In other words, you will have to toe the line, Mrs. Well, uh, you guys might know by the time you listen to this whether Tracy Crouch is in the government or not. Um, we'll end this episode with Philip Hammond's really, really bad toilet humour during the budget. <laughs> I'm pleased to announce a new mandatory business rates relief for public lavatories so that, so that local authorities can at last relieve themselves. For the... Uh, for the convenience of the House, Mr Deputy Speaker, and without wishing to get unduly bogged down on this subject, 